Well, good morning, everyone. I was kind of enjoying the role there, Steve, you know. Yesterday, second, last night, this morning. I'm like, well, I'll just finish the rest of the week off. I can sit in the back and uh, enjoy it. But uh, let me say on the behalf of the rest of the conference, uh, brother, that we, um, we love your ministry. We love your ministry not only because you present it from the pulpit, but because you live it. And that means a great deal to us. And uh, the Lord knows we need role models in the world. And uh, Brother Steve's been a role model to me, not only in what he does professionally and in his work as a physician. You know, the, the medical workplace can be a challenging place. Um, although I must say the Lord has, has really blessed us. When, when we left Toronto, when we were here last this conference, uh, Heather and I and, uh, well, one of the girls before the other one was born, uh, we lived in Toronto. And I was part of a a large department. As some of you know, I'm a blood cancer doctor. We were a fairly large department of 50 hematologists and oncologists working together, uh, 50, 55, and I was the only believer. We moved to Scottsdale, Arizona to work at Mayo Clinic, and uh, the head of the department was a believer and, and wasn't there the first few days I was there because he was on a missionary trip in Mexico. I thought... One of these things is not like the other, you know. Um, and, uh, but, of course, it can be a very challenging place. And so to have role models like we have, and the Lord knows our young people need role models. Are they going to find them in the sporting world? Are they going to find them in the entertainment business? Are they going to find them in the political world? It's challenging. Uh, and so the Lord help us to uh, see that what we say behind the pulpit is only a fraction of what we try to bring. And that's one of the reasons why we love this week so much, because we can spend time with you and enjoy fellowship and company with you and hopefully encourage you. You've been a tremendous encouragement to me. You've been a great encouragement to my stomach. That's absolutely for sure. And we've, uh, we've been blessed by it. Turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're, of course, doing a bit of a survey throughout this latter part of the Old Testament, trying to see how the struggles of the nation of Israel then are very similar to the struggles that we have today. And sadly, the same mistakes they made are the ones that we make today, and hopefully we'll see that we have a God who is patient with them and is indeed patient with us today and can uh, bring us to victory. So we spent our first two sessions looking at Ezra. To give you a sense, the plan is uh, this, this morning and again tomorrow morning to focus on Nehemiah. We'll take two sessions for Nehemiah. Well, this morning we'll focus more on Nehemiah as a person, his character and his initial plan and desire and longing to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then, Lord willing, we'll spend the rest of uh, our, our next session tomorrow morning thinking a little bit about the actual uh, building of the walls and what it was like to motivate those individuals to work together. Uh, and in such a, a short period of time, in 52 days, your handout, unfortunately, I, I, I typed 52 weeks probably just by, uh, by convention, but in 52 days they completed the work, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. And then, Lord willing, our final two sessions in the mornings, we'll think together uh, about uh, Esther and Job, and we'll take a different subject uh, tomorrow night in the Gospel. But I want to read with you uh, a significant portion of, the, of uh, Nehemiah, because I, I do think it's so important. You remember the challenge I gave yesterday? I hope some of you are going to take up the challenge to either read your Bibles through by next year or to devote a month, uh, a book to each month of the year. So I do think it's important. And there's something unique about the public reading of God's Word, something that we don't do as much. We sometimes talk about Bible readings. But we often don't read. Uh, I think often because we're worried and preachers are worried about the time that they have. They don't want to spend extra time reading. 
but I'd like to read the whole of the first chapter, all 11 verses, um, and, and part of the second chapter with you. You remember when the nation of Israel stood between the two mountains and they would read the scriptures. There's something wonderful about the word of God not returning void to itself. And tomorrow night in the gospel, we plan to talk a little bit about that, how the word of God goes out. And very often we don't know what the result is going to be, but we know nonetheless it'll always, it'll never return void. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and he came to Bath, pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, we'll talk about his setting in a moment, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them, notice that he was the one doing the asking, I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. Just very quickly, by way of remembrance, you you remember that our last two days, hopefully you re- remember, right? um, in the last two days, that we've talked about the fact that the, uh, the Judah, uh, so the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, were in captivity to the Babylonians for about 70 years, which came to an end when the Persians uh, beat out the Babylonians and the decree went forth to help, uh, to help to return to Jerusalem. And so there were two big waves. They came under Zerubbabel to help rebuild uh, parts of the temple and under uh, uh, Ezra, as we discussed at length yesterday, uh, to uh, unite the people together, to restore them to the word of God, uh, to restore their life in Jerusalem. Well, unfortunately, it didn't take too long for problems to arise. Right? And this is one of the themes we're going to focus on today. I don't know about you, but every time it seems that things are going well, that's when the challenges are going to hit. And sure enough, uh, they said unto me, verse 3, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. What would you do if you were Nehemiah? I mean, as we'll say in a moment, he's living in the palace, right? I mean, he's staying at the uh, presidential suite at the Awani, right? And he hears that, that one of the housekeeping uh, uh, areas has fallen down, you know? So, so he might just say, you can pick up your own tent, thank you, right? I mean, but, but what does he say? And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, not just a few minutes. You know, you see an image of a, of a, of a starving child on television and it moves you to tears for a few minutes. And, you know, 15 minutes later, you're having your nachos, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't affect you that long. Certain days he's, he's weeping here. And fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants. And confess, notice this, confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We'll come back to that prayer in a moment. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations, but... If ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them then from thence 
and bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let thine ear now be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Beautiful prayer. So what happens next verse? And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. If you're not familiar, the cupbearer is the individual who's literally the direct butler or servant to the king. And one of the things the cupbearer has to do is personally serve the king and check that the food, uh, the wine, or whatever he's bringing to the king is safe. Right? So on the one hand, this is a glorious job. Because you get to eat the, the food of kings. On the other hand, let me suggest it might be difficult to get disability insurance, right? Or life insurance when you're the cupbearer. Because if anyone wants to poison the king, yeah, you get it first, right? So on the one hand, it seems like this is a really wonderful job. On the other hand, this is one of the riskiest jobs uh, in, in the whole of the nation. And so um, one of the things that hopefully you appreciate and understand Uh, These kings uh, were not just like our presidents or prime ministers or governors. I mean, these kings have ultimate authority. And these are the kings that could command people to drop to their knees and worship them. I mean, you might not like whomever is in office over your state or country or area, but it's not quite likely that they expect you to bow down and worship them. So when you deal with this kind of king, you, you have to do it gently. You're kind of walking on thin ice. And so he says, you know, I was not sad before. I didn't express emotion to him. You know, you weren't hired a cupbearer to be emo, right? You're not there to be emotional. You're not there to think. You're not there to share your heart. You're there to make sure the food is okay and present it to the king. But obviously, as we'll see, Nehemiah had clearly had a good reputation and a positive testimony with the king. Wherefore, the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? Now, the king has a lot of interest in knowing if Nehemiah is sick, right? Like, I'm sure that he got more than an annual physical, right? I mean, Nehemiah was checked pretty carefully because if Nehemiah gets sick, you know who's next in line. There, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Notice this next phrase. Then I was very sore afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid? The king says, you're not sick. You're obviously disheartened. You're broken about something. What are you going to say? Uh, so, sorry, king. Uh, uh, I, I really no. Everything's good. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Right? You, you want to pretend everything's okay, but not Nehemiah. He had already been so in cl- a close touch with the Lord that he felt this was his opportunity. We'll talk about leveraging opportunities in a moment. And said to the king, "Let the king live forever." So he starts not just buttering up the king, but he starts with genuine respect for the king. 
That's a common expression we see in the scriptures. We see it outside the scriptures in other contexts. The concept of, we know that the king's not going to live forever, but there's that, that idea uh, that, uh, that uh, you, you respect that in authority. And he says this, and this is, if I can use the phrase, gutsy. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? You know, this king who's in power now has a lot to do with that. It's almost like he's saying, you know, king, how can I not be sad when my real people are are, are broken and are weeping and and have gates burned down with fire in Jerusalem? Which, by the way, you contributed to. You know, like, awkward party of one, awkward party of one. I mean, how, could, how can that not be uncomfortable to share with the king? And this is the miraculous bit, if you will. Because the king could have just said right there, your head's off. There's another 150 people waiting to be a cupbearer. Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? And there's this beautiful answer that, that he shares with us that he doesn't share with the king. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Oh, you better pray to the God of heaven. You're about to speak to the king and you're going to ask him something that makes that previous question look like just the appetizer, right? Here comes the main dish. And I said to the king, what a beautiful response, by the way. You know, sometimes you don't have long to pray. We love prayer meetings. We love in some ways, it's beautiful to pray for long periods of time. We have recorded long prayers in the scripture. This might be one of the shortest ones. Oh, sort of like Peter saying, Lord, help me, right, when he's sinking. But let me suggest that the relationship between Nehemiah and his God was so strong that it was natural to pray even in those five seconds between the king asking a question and him answering. You want to know what pray without ceasing means? That constant attitude of prayer. This is living example of it. And he says, verse 5, And I said to the king, If it please the king, so he's not being demanding, he's being respectful, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. Can you imagine that? Like, his contract does not have a leave of absence clause, right? You, you can't just take PTO and, and, and go off and leave the king behind. The king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? Can you imagine how the sweat started to cool a little bit on his brow after he heard the king supporting him? And when wilt thou return? Not, let me think about it. Let me bring it to my advisors. No, he has ultimate authority. He says, you can go. So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Listen, at this point, Nehemiah, cut your losses. All right? Like, just accept that he's letting you go. Get out of the presence of the king before he changes his mind. No, what does Nehemiah do? Moreover, I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me, let, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come into Judah and a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertained to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me 
according to the good hand of my God upon me. Can you imagine the gall of Nehemiah? I mean, it's one thing to take some time off. By the way, while we're at it, King, um, I wonder if you can make sure I have safe passage. Can you send letters to make sure that I'm safe along the way? And, and you know, while we're on it, um, do you think you could also uh, just arrange for me to get some wood? Because I want to rebuild the walls. I mean, it almost seems, if I can use the word redonkulous, to ask that much of the king. But the king grants it. And notice Nehemiah's answer. He doesn't say, so the king granted my brilliant request that I had been preparing for ages. No, because there's the good hand of God upon me. Nehemiah knew, ultimately, although he was asking the king, he was really asking God. The king. Oh, we are respectful of the authorities above us. But let's remember, as the Lord Jesus so bluntly said to Pilate, if it were not for my father, you would have no authority. Imagine him standing there with his little broom hat, looking at at the Lord Jesus with his hands on his hips. Know you not that I have power over you? What a miracle the Lord didn't extinguish him in a second. And it's like one of these tiny little ants looking up at you and saying, I got you. Right? But Nehemiah was in so, such cl- close proximity to the Lord that he was able to do this. Come down, let's finish our reading at the end of chapter 2, chapter uh, 2, um, verse 17, where he had the opportunity now to go and view the wall, uh, view the city. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come. And let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God that was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. It's a beautiful phrase. You know, the Rise Up Conference came really out of this phrase. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn. And despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then I answered them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. He will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. We'll stop there and talk more about that sheep gate uh, tomorrow. What an amazing story, isn't it? So give the, the, in your handout here, give you a little bit of background. We, we don't know very much about Nehemiah's background. Uh, his name means Jehovah consoles, and uh, perhaps that's appropriate just in the way that the Lord obviously prepared his heart for this moment. And he becomes here the sort of the third major personage in bringing back the people to their land. We've talked about Zerubbabel. We've talked about Ezra. Now, of course, uh, about 80 years later, uh, we, we talk about um, uh, Nehemiah. But even though Ezra had had this great revival, it wasn't long thereafter that things were in disarray. And even in that, there's a lesson for us, isn't there? That very often we have success in in our spiritual life, and yet it's not very long before things change. And sadly, sometimes it's even in the areas of our strength 
You know, we always say Satan knows my weaknesses. He knows just what button to push. I'm not minimizing that. But have you often noticed in the scriptures how often individuals failed in their strengths? Moses was the meekest man on the earth and he lost his temper. David was a man after God's own heart, as we discussed the other night, and then he sadly gave his heart to someone else. So beware not only of your weaknesses, but of your strengths. We even see this geographically and historically. Uh, remember the, the great story uh, we were chatting uh, uh, not long ago uh, with some of you over lunch about how the Lord miraculously gave Jericho into the hands of the nation of Israel. Well, it wasn't that much longer that there's fat King Eglon sitting in the city of palm trees and he's sitting in Jericho. You would say, wait a minute, didn't, didn't we have Jericho? I remember that story. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. We sing it with the kids. Don't we have Jericho? We did. So sometimes God gives you great victory in an area of your life. But this is not a single battle. This is a war. And so God gives you victory in an area of your life and you're thankful for it. Don't become smug about it because before long he'll attack that area. The enemy will attack that area again and you just got to win it all over again. Over and over and over again. And that was Nehemiah's responsibility here. And I think what we see in the bigger picture, if we see that Zerubbabel restored, if you will, the concept of worship to his people, and Ezra brought them to the word of God, Nehemiah speaks to us in the global sense of revival on a day-to-day basis. That constantly living for the Lord Jesus while I'm fighting the battles of life. You know, we come to a conference like this and have this, if I can use it, literal mountaintop experience with God, but every mountaintop's got two valleys on either side, right? And it's one thing to be here in the, in the company of God's people and to feel encouraged and lifted up and strengthened and bonded in the Lord Jesus. But then, you know, next week when you're back at work or you're back at home or you're back at school and you're struggling, that's when you need that constant vigilant battle. And those are the lessons I want us to learn from the life of Nehemiah. That as we'll see, as they literally, I mentioned the other day, they have in one hand, they're laying down a brick and the other hand, they've got a sword fighting off the enemy. Isn't that kind of what we do in the work of God? We're fighting and we're building at the same time. And so Nehemiah beautifully pictures that to us as we come uh, literally to the end of the Old Testament. I've given here my proposed outline. It's very simple. The first 12 chapters really focus on this restoration of Israel, uh, of, of Jerusalem rather. Um, and it's interesting that chapter 13, as I, we've called, as I've called it in his second visit, the Reformation, that even in the, even in the period of time of Nehemiah's life, they had ups and downs where things seemed to be going well and they repaired the walls. And in such a short period of time, they were able to, to, to bind everybody together again. But yet they still need a Reformation later. This is the theme. If, there's everything, if you forget everything else I've said this week, this is the theme that we've seen over and over again. As we haven't arrived until we make it to heaven. We need constant, repetitive victory in the life of the believer because the enemy is going to come in over and over again. Well, how would I like to break up these major themes that you see here in your handout for the time that we have? I'd like to think of the first five with you uh, this morning, and then we'll look at the remaining uh, up to 12 tomorrow. So number one, concern for the people of God. I've often said, you know, Nehemiah captures 
in this short period that we've read together here, he captures three things beautifully. He's a man of concern, a man of prayer, and a man of action. And let's look at those three in turn. Number one, concern for the people of God. We spoke a little bit about this the other night to the young people when we saw Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, weeping over the people. And Jeremiah 9 brings us naturally to that connection of the Lord Jesus when he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I have gathered you together as a hen doth gather chicks, but ye would not. That the start, the context that we have here of Nehemiah, before you can do any action for the work of God, the concern has to be in your heart. Do you care? You'd answer me and say, well, obviously, Joe, I care. I was like, I wouldn't be at the conference, right? I wouldn't be going to the meetings if I didn't care. Well, it's more than just an intellectual care. What weighs on your heart more? Your job responsibilities, even your home responsibilities, these are very important, of course. As we said, we serve the Lord 24-7. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we're ambassadors for Christ. But what pulls at your heart more than anything else? And what a great example in Nehemiah that despite his cushy life, if you will, in the palace, he was more interested in the devastation of Jerusalem. So it tells us that we need to have that kind of care and compassion. When was the last time you literally shed a tear for God's people? Some of us shed tears more easily than others. So that's not the gold standard. When was the last time you were genuinely moved? I like to, I don't know if I've ever taken this up at, at um, in uh, Yosemite or at Claremont or some of the assemblies that are represented here, but I, I've often uh, been fascinated by the posture that someone takes in the Scripture when they're going to pray. It's reflective of things that, you know, if I come to you and I've got big news and I say, look, I think you better sit down for this. It's amazing how many times people have to sit to pray. One of the most beautiful ones, one of my favorites, is the, the prayer that, uh, that Brother Steve mentioned the other night to the young people. Remember when David came to the Lord uh, and through, through the prophet, and he said, you know, Lord, I, I can't live in a tent. Well, well, I can't live in this beautiful palace while you live in a tent. I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord came back and says, no, I'm going to build you a house. You know, kind of like two men standing at the door after you. No, 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 really, after you. No, no, I insist, after you. Well, someone walked through the door, right? And, um, and, and so the Lord is getting into this almost negotiation with David. David's saying, Lord, I'll build you a house. No, 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 I want to build you a house. And of course, he wasn't just talking about the physical um, a temple that would be built. He was speaking of his heritage, of course, in the Messiah himself. And David is so overwhelmed. Because David understood that he wasn't just going to have a temple built by his son. I would suggest to you that David's connection to the Lord was close enough that when when the Lord told him that, David understood that his line would bring the Messiah. It says that David sat down in the presence of the Lord and just soaked it up and said, Oh Lord, do, do as thou hast said. And here we have Nehemiah and he sits down to weep. And I put it this way, when was the last last time you sat down, overwhelmed for concern for God's people? Or concern for the lost? It's so easy to become callous, isn't it? Callous to those in our workplaces and our families, 
around the planet that haven't Christ and get all caught up with our own little business? Lord, help us to be more open to that. I pray every day that I'll teach my daughters there are things worth being upset about and, 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 and that bucket as you get older gets smaller and smaller. We let things upset us and affect us that shouldn't when the things that should affect us don't. I tell a 20-year-old she has leukemia and she's not going to survive a few months. Can I worry about a scratch on my car? Can I worry about my seat on the plane? I mean, honestly, things that, that let us have our days ruined over nothing. When we should be heartbroken over the devastation of God's people and the desperate need for Christ in this state and across the world. So Nehemiah embodied to us, I believe, in, in type form of the Lord Jesus, that genuine concern for God's people. Do you have that kind of concern? And let me suggest to you that Nehemiah didn't wake up one morning and have this heavy concern. You can't leave this meeting today and all of a sudden have this huge burden for God's people. It's not going to happen instantly. This is something that is cultured, that has grown. You know, the Lord built us in such a way, I believe, both emotionally and physically, that we need time to develop patterns and habits and concerns. You know, we can't, you can't have a habit instantly, right? Habit, by, by definition, is something that over a while you develop. And God help us to develop, if you will, habits of genuine concern. Do you go to the prayer meeting because you feel like you kind of have to be there and, and you pray for the things that are listed at your prayer meeting because you sort of feel the duty to do it? Well, we do have a duty to pray in our assemblies. And I think the prayer meeting is the lifeblood of an assembly. That being said, is it really out of a concern for these people that you're praying? I would never suggest that we're praying like the Pharisees and Sadducees who just like their voices to be heard. But there can be a callousness, a coldness, a distance that can set in. Don't let that happen. Think of the Lord Jesus and his compassion and care for us. But not only was he a man of concern, he did something about it. Then he prayed. And so major theme number two, uh, prayer uh, by the people of God. It's amazing how often in this book, we've only read a couple of them, how often we see Nehemiah praying. He had this long prayer that we read when he called out to the Lord. And it's a beautiful template of prayer that we'll come to in a moment. And sometimes he prayed in a few seconds when he was answering the king. And it goes back to the same notion. He didn't become a man of concern overnight. He didn't become a man of prayer overnight. Prayer is like training. Can I put it that way? Not to minimize it. If you haven't been in training, you can't get up in the morning and run 10 miles. If you try, it could hurt a lot. I'm still a bit sore from yesterday. There's a couple extra mountains on the way to Mirror Lake that weren't here 10 years ago. Um, anyway, um, but it's something that we have to develop a capacity for. So let me ask it this way. What is your capacity to pray? I think of a dear brother, I won't mention him by name, a dear brother who was in the Lord's work for many, many years, and one of the blessings of having the parents I had is they were wonderful uh, in hospitality. I always try and share with people that when you're hospitable, 
not only, of course, does it bless the individual who's being hosted and the host and hostess themselves and, of course, the Lord, it benefits the children of the host and hostess, even when they're too young to understand what's going on. All I knew is we may as well have had revolving doors in our house because we had people coming in and out of the house all the time. And this brother, he took quite literally when the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, can you not watch with me and pray with me for but an hour? So his answer to that was he wanted to spend an hour a day praying. And he did. I'm not suggesting that that's what you absolutely have to do. But let me... Let me give you a challenge, perhaps. This is a tough one, because I've tried it. What if you were able to block an hour on a certain day this coming week? Could you even pray for an hour? Would you run out of things to pray for? Would it be a whole list of wants? Right? Let's just walk through uh, each of the continents, right? Let's pray for people in this, or pray for people in Antarctica, and we just sort of like, you know, work our way through, or... Have you developed a close enough relationship with the Lord that you can enjoy that hour? As we've been hearing this week, it's like our spouses, like our family. Uh, Can you sit with your spouse and have a conversation for an hour? I hope so. If not, there might be a challenge, but it's because you've built that relationship with them. It's not radically different in the way we build our relationship with the Lord Jesus. That he's someone that we share our day with. I think of individuals that I know in my life who are in a constant state of prayer. I think there's one brother, and I've made mention of him before, again, not by name, where it almost seems every time you come up to talk to him, it's almost like he's having a conversation with the Lord. He's like, oh, okay, Lord, just one moment. Joe's coming up to talk to me. I'll come back to you in a sec. Oh, hi, Joe. How you doing? You know, it's like he's constantly in this state of prayer. Lord, help us to be more like that. But then the specifics of prayer are seen here in his prayer. And we haven't time to go through every last one of them. But notice the template here, much like the template of the Lord's Prayer that he gave to us uh, in chapter 1. You know, he gave, he gave honor and worship the Lord. He said things like, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and commandments. That, that isn't buttering up the Lord to ask him something. That's recognizing that he's the God of heaven. And when he did ask, he asked intelligently. I don't want to use the word intelligence to scare you off to thinking this is an intellectual activity. But he didn't just say, oh, Lord, you know, fix the whole nation. Oh, Lord, save everybody on the planet. Uh, Yes, in a sense, we want that. But, But I think a reflection of our maturity in prayer is the specific nature of our prayer. Obviously, Nehemiah had spent a lot of time thinking about this. And considering this in his concern and in his prayer, because ultimately when given the opportunity with the king, he was very precise in what he asked for. So he was precise here with the Lord. And maybe the most important thing that Nehemiah did in his prayer is the use of the word we. He didn't say, you know, Lord, those people down in Jerusalem, they're in trouble. Can you help me go fix it up for them? Because they sinned against you. No, he took ownership of his sin. And just like someone can't come to faith in Christ until they're genuinely repentant, which is literally taking ownership of their sin, similarly as a believer, we need to take ownership of our circumstances and of our failings if the Lord is going to help us through. It's so easy to say, oh, my sins are all paid for already, so I don't have to repent of them anymore. That's not really true. Yes, they are paid for, but we still need to take ownership of them. 
And so he confessed sin. This is a great template of public confession of, 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 their, of their sins so that the Lord would be with them. And then thirdly, uh, number, number three, taking action for the people of God. So if, if Nehemiah were a man of concern and even indeed a man of prayer, but was not a man of action, the book might have ended at the end of chapter one. All right. But he was ready and willing. He had thought it through. He was prepared. And when his opening came, he took it. We were talking with the Shapiro's a little bit yesterday at lunch about how this is a little bit different than what Ezra did. We didn't get a lot of time to discuss this yesterday. But you remember at one point when Ezra was offered help, he said, no, no, no. We can do this on our own. We got to show you we do it on our own. But here, Nehemiah is asking for the help to get the wood and to have the safe passage. So who's right and who's wrong? Well, they're both right. By being dependent on the Lord, by being in touch with the Lord, there's going to be a time when we're going to say we need this help. Other times we won't need this help. There are going to be times when we leverage our resources, pagan though they might be, and other times we say no. Right? We think of, of Abraham even. He gives a great example of that when he rescued Lot and all those people and the kings came to him and said, oh, we want to give you a gift. He says, nope. I don't want anyone to think that you're the ones who funded my operation nor, nor, nor uh, uh, made, me, made me wealthy because of what we've done, except for the food the men have eaten. Huh? You can cover our travel expenses, but I, I'm not going to take any more than that. That delicate balance between the two. This is something we've noted repeatedly in our messages, this notion of the secular and the spiritual together. The only way you know that right balance is to be in touch with the Lord. That's why often we don't say God gives you just a list of priorities and you say priority number one, two, three, and four. I don't really think that's correct because if you make a list of priorities, who's number one? Okay, God. We all agree? All in favor, sit down? Good. So we agree, right? And then you say, well, what's number two? Is it the family or is it the assembly? Awkward, right? I mean, which, which one is it? Well, you know, the reality is by putting God first, then the natural pattern in any given day is going to be clear. And on one specific day, it might be the family. Your family absolutely needs you that day. And that church activity that's going on, you may not be able to participate in it because your family needs you right then. By contrast, on a different day, the Lord might say, no, the assembly needs you today. It's not some uh, archaic, simple list like this that we say, oh, you're number three versus number five. So you get the priority. It's being in touch with the Lord that we can test and prove what the Lord wants us to do in a given day. And that's, of course, uh, lesson number four, leveraging resources to serve the Lord, the king in Persia. And lastly, and we'll close with this as our time is going, leadership by example. We'll see more of this when we come to see how they actually built the walls themselves. But notice how Nehemiah didn't make it Nehemiah's plight or Nehemiah's cause, you know, vote for me and I'll set you free. No, Nehemiah surrounded him with other people and brought them with him. They surveyed the land and he got right in there and worked. And God help us to be leaders, as we mentioned, even about our dear brother here, about being leaders by example. Not say as I say, but don't really do what I do. And Nehemiah was like that. And I pray that we'd all be more like Nehemiah today. That you'd have greater concern for God's people. That your prayer life would mature. That you'd be active in God's work to do it. And that you'd be a role model 
to others who so desperately need role models today. Let's pray. Father, we are inordinately grateful for every opportunity to gather together. It's a privilege just to be in the company of other believers. Just that in itself warms our hearts and builds us up and strengthens us. Encourage us, we pray today. We're thankful for uh, the ministry that we've shared this morning. We pray that it would be Uh, that it would take root in our lives. Father, help us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Help us to be a testimony and example to others. Father, help us to learn from this amazing story of Nehemiah. Uh, Oh, Father, that our hearts would be moved for the purposes of God. That we pray, that we pray specifically, that we would pray intelligently. That indeed we'd be men and women of action to carry out those things that the Lord has for us. Bless us, we pray, Father, over the course of the day. We're thankful for this beautiful weather and this beautiful fellowship. Encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen.